You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. John Walker. By using numbers for letters, I seek to become a cofactor in the mystic powers that rule the world. Also with us this week is Mr. Daniel Bird. Hello. This week we are looking at the 1937 film The Dybbuk, directed by Michael Wazinski, and one of many adaptations of Shalomansky's play. The film tells the tale of a young couple who are fated to be together by their father's promise. When that promise is broken or forgotten, some bad things happen. Now, this film is almost 80 years old, so uh, yeah, spoiler alert, I guess. Good luck with that. Anyway, Daniel, when was the first time that you saw the Dybbuk, and what did you think? I first saw the Dybbuk in, I guess, the early 2000s. I'd, I'd just come to Warsaw as a student. I started going to the theater in Warsaw. One of the more interesting theatres was called Teat uh, Rosmaitoschi, Variety Theatre, and the star director at the time, a guy called Krzysztof Walikowski, did a, a play which kind of intercut two texts, uh, uh, the Dybbuk, um based on Ansky, and also I think it was a text by Hannah Kral. That was the first time I'd really kind of heard of the concept, to be honest. I did some research and realised that obviously there was a play and uh, also a film. So I read the play and looked at the film and it kind of, uh, well, it blew me away in many ways because although it was often considered and often is considered a kind of a Yiddish film, of course, it's a uh, Yiddish language film, a um, Polish Jewish film, and it was very different from 
what you usually think of when you think of like kind of like the history of Polish cinema and it opened the door to this whole other chapter of kind of Yiddish language cinema in Poland before the war. What I liked about it first and foremost was that it was it was a fantastic film. I mean it was it was a it's a ghost story. Uh, but it's also a musical and uh you know so it's it's got several genres at once and it's a kind of a doom romance and it's got like a the courtroom scene at the end and you know and it kind of brings together all these kind of influences of german expressionism and things like that and uh and it's never kind of gone away i mean i've never kind of looked into it in detail but it's a film which is always kind of uh bong around like a ghost appropriately enough so uh yeah it's, it's a great opportunity to return to it john when was the first time you saw it at one point, we were talking about me coming on this show, <laughs> and you sent me a list of a few films, and the name jumped out at me because it was one that I had read a bit about, and I had sort of boned up on some of the folklore behind Dybbuk's and Golems and all that stuff, but I had never seen the film. So for me, it was a great excuse to sit down and really spend time learning about this movie that I, I sort of knew I should have seen uh, before. And as far as what I thought of it, you know, I'm a big horror fan, so I always look at these older films that were creepy or supernatural with an with an eye towards that. Like, how how's the atmosphere and what kind of mood is it striking? I was really kind of drawn into the kind of old world mysticism of that aspect of it. And I will say this as a kind of a comforting thought about an older film like this, as slow-paced as it can be, and as simple as the plot can seem to be kind of stretched over that time. After seeing the Dybbuk, I was like, you know, I just want to check up. And so I picked a recent film from 2012 called The Possession, which is also a Dybbuk, <laughs> you know, possession movie. And it was so hacky and shallow, it really made me appreciate, again, just the time spent with one of these old slow-paced films where the visuals are going to, you know, take a while for you to kind of let them soak in and everything, but it's, it's, it's a much more rewarding experience than the same subject matter would be treated today. So I, I really enjoyed it as, as a horror film and as, uh, as Daniel was alluding to, the mixed genre aspect of it. It's a really interesting mix of things, and I think that you know, nowadays that subject matter would be treated in a more one-track, simplified way. I saw this one on Daniel's recommendation. I was very fascinated by the film, not even as far as it being a horror movie or a mixed genre type of thing. I just enjoy looking at older films sometimes from more of a like cultural point of view and just seeing the society that it was portraying at the rituals. I found that very interesting to see how that was. And then also know that it was you know through a lens of... Polish cinema 1937 based on a play from 1905 which was based on stories from much earlier than that so I found that very interesting to see the way that things were being put together that way and I, yeah I, I didn't necessarily mind the slower pace the only complaint that I had really was just the subtitles I mean I at first I thought there was no way I was going to be able to watch this film because the first 10 minutes or, of it or so there's a little bit of subtitles to, you know, there's a, a prologue to let us know kind of what's going on. There's a little bit of a scroll at the beginning to let us know what's happening. But then this the first play, scene that takes place at a synagogue, uh, there's no subtitles whatsoever. And these people are just chatting to one another. And it seems like they're saying some very important things, but I have no idea what's being said. Thank goodness for Wikipedia, which tells me kind of more of what the play is saying versus the film, but at least I'm kind of getting an idea of what they might be talking about in this. 
Yes, in terms of a synopsis, I had read the Wikipedia page about the play. I'd, I'd hoped to find time to read the play before having this conversation, but I just I wasn't able to. But I, I think between that and just what I knew about the movie's story, I was able to kind of put it together, and, and the occasional word would sneak through that I know, you know. You know, it's just disappointing because you're into the movie and you're into the atmosphere of the film, and you want to find out whatever facts were on the screen for you to glean. And, for instance, that opening scene, the whole relationship between – the two friends, uh, Cinder and Nissan, is established in their dialogue in those scenes. And you can tell from the way these guys are acting that these are the happiest friends ever. But you, you don't really know the text of what they're talking about. So I, I did feel a little bit bereft of that content, too. There is a very interesting difference between um, the film and the play and the way that you have. And it's not until really an hour into the film that the kind of the, the possession story really kind of kicks in. What you have in the film, which is kind of implied and described, but not actually shown in the play, is this whole relationship. And uh, so, I mean, it really, you know, it's like a, it's like an entire backstory at the beginning of the film. But in terms of the actual content, I mean, I think that having read the play, I mean, a lot of the dialogue, which does appear in the those kind of subtitles, are more kind of plot points and everything else. A lot of the content of those kind of early acts in the play, it is the, introducing this kind of... Um, cultural life uh the the kind of the myth you know the kind of the religious aspects and uh various kind of mythological components and it's it's texture it's it's kind of plunging you into this kind of uh world where um magic exists getting back to the two friends i mean i could definitely see what you're talking about john when it came to these guys being pals and everything and it feels like they want to say something to the rabbi who's leading everything but things keep getting in the way is what i was kind of taking away from it and then there's this character that uh i believe they call uh the messenger and he is just a fascinating character to me. This really spooky dude who's just hanging out on the outskirts, and every time he says something, people react in a very bad way. <laughs> so, and that character was great to me, and I also love that he doesn't seem to change. He seems like he's this eternal uh, figure that is always going to be on the outskirts, and he seems to be kind of warning everybody about stuff. And it isn't until... I think we do get some subtitles because we, we are in the, the synagogue for a while, and then we finally get out. They take a little trip. They sing a song and uh, one of many songs in the films. And, and I know, too, when it comes to films from this era, there were a lot of times where the songs were just expected. You know, you were getting a, a, a whole variety act when it came to any sort of movie. I mean, looking at uh, a lot of films from this time, there are often song breaks. You know, you just, it's kind of expected that you're going to have at least one musical interlude, if not two, if not three, during this time. So it was neat to see how they worked that into the film as well. And in here, the song that I think it's, is it Sender that he sings? Or is it, no, sorry, it's, it's, it's Nissan, it's I Nissan, think. Nissan, yeah. It, the one that he sings actually becomes a plot point later on in the film when somebody else is singing that song. And it's like, oh, that was my friend's song. <laughs> it's kind of neat, too, because the two characters, Nissan and Sender, eventually Nissan uh, dies in this uh, really 
elaborate storm sequence and sender it looks like it's the same actor who plays sender when he's older but he just has like the big beard and everything on so he's got this really young face with this big beard Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it worked for me you know it it definitely worked because there were a lot of uh very authentic big beards in this film the fact that it was the same actor really helped me make sure that i was correct that it was the same character because that's another kind of casualty of not hearing what people or not understanding i should say what people were saying in that opening scene so i cuz i recognized that guy he had a real i don't know a very re- memorable kind of bone structure to his face the guy that played sender I, I before we leave the subject of the messenger though i do want to mention i it took me a minute to decide that we were supposed to recognize him as like fading in and fading out now obviously as the film goes on there's lots of like double exposure tricks like that. But the very first scene where the messenger kind of fades into view, I wasn't sure if that was just the way I saw that or if we were supposed to believe that he magically appeared. But it very quickly becomes apparent that he has like Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers level teleportation abilities where he can just kind of pop up <laughs> wherever wherever people can be most frightened by him. I, I, I thought he was interesting. The, the write-up of the film mentioned him as a sinister character. I saw him more as that kind of just outside the ways of man, not quite sinister, but just he's bringing the wisdom that kind of lies outside the world of these people um, or, you know, the that's part of the mysticism that they adhere to, but they still like, they go, they believe what he's speaking is the truth, but they also are scared to see him when he pops up. Because like you said, Mike, it's never good news when the, the divine creeper shows up. One of the interesting aspects about the film is that it, it, it kind of grows out of the tradition of um, Yiddish theater. I mean, the, the author of the play, uh, Anski, whose real name was Solomon Rappaport, had a background in ethnology and uh, it kind of, when it was kind of shaped into a drama, um, Stanislavski, you know, the the, the director, and uh, gave some kind of advice regarding the kind of dramaturgy, and and he kind of suggested a figure like somebody in a Greek tragedy, to, who's kind of like like you know the chorus basically kind of commenting in it, on the action, but being separate from the actual actors, and uh, you know, and I think the messenger kind of serves as that function and and it's essential for this story to kind of give it context and he's there to kind of you know explain but not actually interact so at the heart of the film is this promise that nissan and sender make to one another even though they're technically not supposed to make this promise which i found to be very interesting they promise one another that if one person has a boy and the other one has a girl that their children will end up getting married And unfortunately, uh, Nissan dies in this tragic storm, and then Sender eventually forgets that he made this promise. And Sender has a daughter, Nissan had had a son, and we see them later on in life. We see Sender, and I love the way that we get this whole idea of Sender and his daughter, Leah, getting older, where we have Sender at this table – and he's there counting money, and his daughter will come in, or his daughter originally is is in his wife's arms, and it's like, don't disturb me, I'm counting money. And then they kind of do a, a, a fade, and then come back, and then here's the younger version of Leah, and he's like, leave me alone, I'm counting money. And it kind of, it's it was kind of bad, because I'm just like, wow, what a Jewish stereotype, you know? <laughs> it's like, leave me alone, I'm counting money. So, and then we get the older Leah that comes in. And again, 
senders there still counting money but it was a nice way it kind of reminded me of like the uh the the breakfast table scene in citizen kane where they're going back and forth and seeing these people grow older and more you know uh in in that one hating each other more each year kind of thing but in this one we get to see leah kind of grow up and the way that she isn't necessarily uh the center of her father's world it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I made a note about that scene just because I thought him saying, like, be quiet, father is counting money is such a – it did seem sort of on the nose. And I was wondering about that aspect of if that's just my modern mind hearing that and thinking this seems like it's it's hewing close to a stereotype because within the story – Cinder's clearly not the only representative of the Jewish faith, you know? So so it, within the story, he's very much the rich guy who thinks money can buy him everything and matters more than everything. But it didn't seem to me like that was a comment about uh, Judaism. I don't know, but I don't know what the time, if that was seen, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if that was seen as just a representation of a character or if it would have been taken as, as you know, validating a horrible stereotype. Because it is very <laughs> on the nose. The, the basis of the film is a sin, and the sin is that these two guys make an agreement, and uh, one of those guys breaks the agreement. And the reason he breaks the agreement is over money, the fact that uh, he finds a, a, a groom with more money, a potential groom, that is. So he kind of uh, forgets that agreement or ignores it or breaks it, and it's that transgression which uh, sets the the, the whole Dibble kind of story in motion. Yeah, and there are other characters out there who are telling him, you know, you're always counting money, what's the matter with you? So I was like, okay, shoo, this wasn't just a Jewish stereotype. Now, had the whole town just been there counting money all the time, I would have been like, oh my gosh, this is <laughs> terrible. <laughs> but yeah, that is definitely a, a foible of his. It's a Jewish play with Jewish director, <laughs> kind of Jewish dramatist. So I, don't, I think it would be rather... I don't think that's the case at all in many ways. It, it, it is a plot point. It's, it's about a transgression, a kind of a, a breaking of an agreement. And uh, that's why, uh, the, that's why the, the spirit cannot rest, because right. uh, he was destined uh, to marry this girl. And because he couldn't, the, the spirit is a wandering one. And so, you know, it's really about a transgression. Well, I think Sender transgresses quite a bit in this because even when he first meets uh, Canaan, who is Nissan's son, I want to say that he's breaking the Sabbath by having a carriage ride. The messenger and Canaan kind of show up in the story right around the same time, and I want to say that the messenger kind of chides Sender for doing that. I could be wrong, though, because that's the thing about this film is that not just that I have a poor memory of it, because I did just watch it again last night, but just that there are times where I think I'm seeing stuff, or like the subtitles are there, and then sometimes they're not. So it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it was a, a little difficult of a watch, but I'm pretty sure that that's what's going on. But eventually, Kanan comes into the story, and Kanan is Nissan's son, as we said, but there is no recognition of him being that it isn't until about i think almost an hour into the proceedings that there is that final acknowledgement by sender that this is his friend's son and then he realizes and remembers the promise and everything but yeah to your point daniel that's when he kind of ignores it because there is potential for a better groom to come into the picture because nissan or sorry Canaan isn't necessarily the richest guy in the world. He is basically a student. He's just a yeshiva student who 
doesn't have a, a really a scent to his name. Like when it com- he comes to town and Leah meets him and they strike up a friendship right away. And Leah asks him where he's going to spend the night. He's like, well, I'm going to s- spend the night in the synagogue. And of course, that's also where we get some of the spiritualism as well, because she's like, well, you know, that's where the, the ghosts of other people will pray at that time. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. I'm, I'm okay. But yeah, he's not... He doesn't have a, a B&B to stay at or a big hotel or anything. He's just a very, very plain student. I thought that was interesting, the way the reveal of uh, Cinder's recognition of the promise that he forgot played. Because they tease it earlier when he's asleep at the table. And it's like there's a connection that could have been made in that scene right there. Because, uh, you know, the uh, <laughs> Kanan and Leah's meet cute is is both of them saying, hey, my parent died on the day I was born. And then they have this, you know, sort of instant connection and you see that if Cinder wasn't asleep in that moment, he would recognize the name Nissan. He would recognize the story. And, and so it made me wonder if we were going to go the whole movie without, without him recognizing it and if that was going to be the kind of dramatic irony at play. But then the fact that he does recognize it, and it's what you were saying, you, you'd see the moment where he does, in fact, get the information in time to do something about it. And then he, he chooses not to. So I thought that was – I don't know. It's just a sophisticated sort of trajectory. Like the promise that was made and broken is a promise they really shouldn't have made in the first place. And then beyond that, when he does find out the truth, he still has time to act. I think that's kind of a, a key point in any tragic story is that there is – it could have gone another way. Well, I think that – I mean the tradition of, of kind of Yiddish theater, I mean it combines kind of uh, melodrama with uh, – an element of social instruction, and uh, I mean, there is a there is a strong moral to this story, you know, that uh, keep your promises. <laughs> yeah, even if you shouldn't have made them. You know, I mean, I think it's interesting this this kind of materialistic aspect to the fact. I mean, as you as you've already said, I mean, that the student is on the one hand very poor, but he's kind of uh, he's a good student, and he he goes beyond the call of duty. I mean, the way that he's familiar and dabbles with the Kabbalah. In fact, that's the source of being able to. Uh, uh, to do this trick, to, to, so that his uh, soul doesn't actually uh, it, it kind of lingers around the graveyard and ultimately uh, takes uh, possession of Leia. So, I mean, I think that 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 um, I mean, the way the play came about is of eth- ethnographic expeditions of, of kind of Ansky going to all these shtetls and uh, and collecting stories, parables, and fables, and then kind of fashioning it into. Uh, a play uh, at this time, and and I think that that it, it is it's interesting now looking back at movies which refer to movies, and here is a here's a movie referring to a uh, to plays and to and to folk stories. Yeah, you mentioned the German expressionism in this, and I noticed it throughout uh, a few times, especially the storm scene. But really, it wasn't until we get the scene of Leah and Kanan out in the street where there's a, a, a headstone in the middle of the street and they start to talk about that. And then looking around at the set that they're in and seeing all of the pillars to the buildings that are kind of slanted. And it just is this kind of almost Caligari-esque world that they're inside of. And that really helped put me on edge and really kind of, you know, showed me that I'm, we're in this nightmare type world where anything can happen. And I found that to be very effective. Yeah. It helped the magical aspect of the story. You're right. The, 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 I love looking at those old sets and seeing just what they had to build and where it becomes a painting. And yeah, the technique behind the film was really very, 
uh, engrossing in that sense. And I do, I keep using the word atmosphere, but I think that that's the main thing. This movie was just, you just take a, you take a step down into this atmosphere and then you just, you know, it sweeps over you. I completely agree with John about that. I mean, I think it's the, the, the strongest asset of the film, it is that feeling of being plunged into a world. I mean, it is just, and I think the pacing of the film actually contributes to that, the way that it kind of lulls you into this kind of very kind of melancholic, slightly mysterious kind of frame of mind. I'm actually in Warsaw at the moment, and uh, I'm uh, the district's Povishla, and, and this is actually a few hundred meters away is where they... They actually shot most of the film in this uh, um, uh, Falanga film studio. I mean, the, most of it was in the studio. Um, there's only a few kind of exterior shots, and that's in a, a town called Kazimierz Dolny. But that that kind of, uh, particularly the kind of the, the the exteriors and then the graveyards. I mean, it, it's just uh, absolutely stunning, and I, and I think it's uh, on par with you know German expressionism. And I think Vashinsky, the director, I mean, he even worked as an assistant at some point to Murnau. So there is even actually a concrete kind of um, uh, aesthetic connection there. So eventually we do have this whole conflict of Kanan could be the bridegroom, but eventually Sender announces that it's going to be somebody else. Though Kanan is trying to work it with the Kabbalah so that he is the bridegroom. He wants to marry Leah, and there is this connection between Leah and him that, of course, does have this kind of supernatural wash to it because they were supposed to be together. Their fate was to be together. Their fathers made this promise, and now the father sender is breaking it, but it feels like as soon as they see each other, they just click, and they know that they're supposed to be together. And so him, <laughs> poor Sender, they're uh, choosing somebody who has more income, uh, breaking the promise and really breaking the, the fate, the, you know, trying to keep these this couple that is fated to be together apart. And so Kanan isn't necessarily going to put up with that. So he goes and uses more his Kabbalah to try to set things in his mind right to the point where he is invoking the name of Satan to try to, uh, you know, become Leah's uh, bridegroom. And uh, that scene where he, you know, is uh, invoking Satan's name and you've got the, the, the wind that's blowing and the, the shutters that are slamming and everything and very, very powerful. And, you know, I talk about the subtitles in the film and, the subtitles are very interesting to me because they take on different fonts depending on where we're at in the story. Sometimes they have this kind of um, stereotypical, like Hebraic uh, flourishes to them, especially when we're talking about the old times, these kind of things. And then sometimes we just have regular, you know, serif font that's being used for conversation. And then every once in a while, we'll dip into a sans serif font for moments like this, very powerful moments. And then later on, when Leah is possessed, that's when we get sans serif for her and serif for everybody else. It's like this the voice from the other world uses this different font for his voice. And uh, this was one of those moments where, you know, him invoking Satan, I believe they're using like, you know, all caps <laughs> and yeah. sans serif font. And uh, it, it made it even more powerful of a moment for me. Yeah, well, we've all known probably for a long time that sans serif fonts are the devil's fonts, right? So this movie just confirms it. 
Well, yeah, I believe that the man who created Verdana was actually a well-known Satanist. That, that explains it. <laughs> the fact that you caught that, because I wrote that down kind of halfway because it amused me, but also I went back and watched it again and noticed, well, I first noticed the font difference in the scene later where Leia shows up and she's speaking sort of with the Dybbuk's voice, you know, and I noticed the font change and I, I wrote that down. And then when I was watching it again, and I think you just referred to it, when, when Kanan is having his big moment where he says like, I, I have I win again, I have conquered or something, you know, the, it's like all caps and it's the same sans serif font. And so I was thinking, okay, yeah, so they really were doing something kind of, uh, again, something more sophisticated than you might think was going on on the surface with like the, the, the sans serif font being an indicator that this is sort of a voice from beyond. The font choices really were making a difference, whether we noticed it at first or not. But yet, there are so few things that are being subtitled for us. You know, so many times where we're getting a conversation where two people are talking, and maybe every third thing that they say is being translated. It was just like, oh, this is so frustrating. But it was such a compelling story that I stuck with it. So I guess that's kind of a testament to the filmmaking prowess. Uh, and also the actors uh, and the way that the two different voices she uses, uh, uh, Lily, uh, Liliana, uh, who plays Leia, to uh, kind of denote the kind of the, the possessed uh, uh, version of herself and the uh, non-possessed version of herself. I mean, I think, you know, that that kind of acting as well. I mean, it's it is very melodramatic. It is very expressionistic, but it, it doesn't it isn't to the point when it's distracting and you're recognizing it as a style. It's just full, you know, full-bodied acting, and uh, I, I mean, I enjoy it. Well, yeah, to see the difference between her when we first see her and she's very carefree, comparing that to when she is possessed by the Dybbuk, it's just like, wow, this is quite a performance for her. I mean, just the some of the reactions that she gives when she is on trial or when the Dybbuk is on trial later on, it's just like, wow, she's really doing a great job with this. And there are some great performances. And I have to say that the guy who plays the, the main rabbi does a really good job. I mean, he plays this whole, like, world-weary... You know, he doesn't feel like he is up to the task at first, and he kind of has to like almost charge himself up by saying, you know, my grandfather did this, and my great-great-grandfather did that, and he lists off all of these amazing feats that his, his lineage has done, and then he finally is just like, you know, I am up for this now. But he plays it really, really well, the way that he, you know, carries that weight to him. And also the mother. Uh, I think she's fantastic as well. He's talking about the woman, the, the older woman that kind of stands in for the mother with the preparing the bride for the wedding and everything towards the end with the way when she's wailing and incredibly yeah but isn't she the same character like she's the one who when they went out and looked at the um bride and groom the holy grave in the town and leia throws herself on it saying that she wants them to protect her from this wedding she doesn't want to you know it's this marriage that she doesn't want to uh, be part of the mother allows her to pray for canaan's soul to come to the wedding because and then she says it'll be my sin and then later when she's – as the scene that Daniel's speaking of, I believe, where she's kind of looking out the window and she's just you know raving, yeah. she says, it's my sin, it's my sin. So it is interesting that even that character has sort of a culpability and a uh, – uh, you know, she, she says it's, it will be her sin. And then later she's, she feels horrified because she realizes perhaps that she did sort of set the stage for, for Leia to kind of let that spirit in. Right, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, those, two, this, those two sets of kind of uh... – 
Oh, well, there's two headstones because at the beginning, I mean, the one in the, the square, I mean, this is a, I mean, they explain it. It's to do with the uh, Milnitsky massacres in the uh, 17th century, you know, which were the about uh, a bride and groom which didn't complete their kind of marriage vows before they were kind of murdered uh, by pogromists. And of course, so you've got this in the background of the story. Then it happens again. And then you've got like a, a, another irony, which we've not touched upon yet, is that, of course, the film was made in 37. So, of course, this whole world uh, vanishes uh, within uh, the space of uh, five, six years. I found that thought so oppressive, actually, while watching the film. I th- I, I, I've wondered about all the actors and everyone involved, like uh, just how their world changed in two years, within two years. Well, I think Lily Liliana, I think she certainly ended up in New York and she was still... Uh, I think I read somewhere that she was still acting in kind of Yiddish theatre uh, in New York. So, I mean, it's, um, but, and, and, and Vashinsky's career obviously changed. I mean, he worked in Europe uh, on, the, on the fringes of Hollywood. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it is terrifying to kind of look at that film. And I think that's that's what's interesting about um, visiting Warsaw today, how it's it's kind of like, a, it, it's conspicuous by its absence, this whole world. I mean, the, the you know, certainly the, the Muranov, the, traditionally the kind of the the what was the jewish part of the city is uh well it's just gone and there's hardly any trace even of uh, the ghetto just a few fragments of wall and the odd building uh so it, it really is very bizarre looking not just at this film but also photos from that period it's there but it's not we're like a ghost <laughs> talking about where these actors ended up because the guy that played Canon and uh, the woman that played Leah actually ended up getting married years later. And uh, they, yeah, to your point, Daniel, they moved to the U S and um, they both lived pretty long lives. I want to say that Leanne was uh, Leanne Liebgold. The guy that played Canon was in his eighties when he passed away. So they did okay. Even though, yeah, their entire world was just torn down shortly thereafter shortly after this movie was made i think there's an interesting aspect i mean you see this in the the photographs of uh, roman vishniak i think this this idea that this feeling that uh, we must record this for posterity and i think that was certainly one of ansky's motives you know of, of collecting uh uh evidence and uh, of shtetl life and existence i mean i mean obviously at the time you know he he didn't know what was going to be around the corner, so, you know, in several decades. Um, but it is. Um, I mean, one of the strange things now is in Moranov, the district I mentioned um, a few years ago, they opened up a museum of the history of the Polish Jews, and it's it's fantastic. But it's also faced with this this huge dilemma in, in the whole concept of the place: is what do you put inside? And and I think this is the the, the terrifying thing about Warsaw is that you know how do you you cannot obviously forget this but how do you remember it and, and i think that's in a strange way it's kind of addressed obliquely in this film in an abstract way which certainly for me makes it um it gives it resonance today so the thing we've been kind of pussyfooting around with when it comes to the film is the actual possession where the actual dibic of the title comes into play and it's from the death of canon and then him, as you were saying, being invited into the wedding. And I love the scene 
at the kind of ceremony. I don't think it is the wedding itself. It's the ceremony before when uh, Leah is dancing with this person who's got this skull mask on. And the way that we have that superimposition of Cannon's face over the skull, man, that was that was terrific. I really like that. And so simple, you know, so effective. It reminds me in a strange way. I mean, the, the, the immediate thought was, the, you know, the, the, the Red Shoes Ballet, uh, when it gets, starts to get really weird halfway through. <laughs> and it, uh, uh, that, that's what it actually reminded me of. And, of course, you could say that the roots of both, the, you know, Pal and Pressburger and, and this film is, is, in some ways, inspired by German Expressionism. But it, it really is the, the kind of the, the most musical aspect of the film, with an awful lot of music, singing and dancing. Yeah, there's there's some good song breaks right around this time. Well, yeah, you've got the dance of the poor, the dance of the beggars, the dance. Of, I think there's the dance of the rich. Am I, or <laughs> there's then there's the yeah. tap dance. It was very. Uh, I mean, I couldn't decide if if it was. I mean, again, not knowing much about the traditions myself, I was wondering: is this sort of an accurate depiction of the traditional marriage ceremony, or was this the movie kind of making a point and just? in a sort of simplistic way saying here's what's going on inside here's what's going on outside because there was clearly another scene later that compared the inside and outside of the wedding by virtue of how much bread you were given uh the guests of the wedding got a whole loaf of bread and these are presumably wealthy people and then the poor people out on the streets all got a little scrap of bread who probably could have used the bread a bit more i think that's another comment on sender but i also didn't know if that was a, a sort of a tradition that i'm not aware of the, the modern hasidic movement was i mean it was founded in poland in the 18th century you know by this Baal Shem Tov. i mean someone i mean someone who called for like a you know a spiritual re- uh, renaissance it's and, and it's something to be made up through all this singing dancing and you know ecstasy i mean it's this uh, and i think that's that's what really kind of it's an ecstatic film and and i think that's most of the film the subtitles are kind of like uh, stabilizers on a bike, just keeping it upright. <laughs> but the, you know, the the actual motor, it, it is actually all of these things which are extremely theatrical and wonderfully cinematic. I mean, it is a musical. Uh, it's a horror musical uh, with a kind of a, a Romeo and Juliet kind of uh, counterpoint to it. It is schmaltzy uh, in some respects. I mean, it's not not oppressively so, but it is very much pulling on heartstrings in terms of the acting and the themes and the love and the, this kind of, you know, we're to, due to be together forever and everything else. Ironically, looking at it now, from my point of view, it's the antithesis of everything which comes to mind when I think of Polish cinema. It's, uh, you know, the, this this kind of sumptuous, playful dancing, you know, and uh, and fun. It is a fun film in a strange way. I think it is a fun film. Well, it does have little moments of light comedy throughout, too. Like, What's his name? Menasha of Klamovka, the uh, or Menasha of Klamovka, I believe, the intended bridegroom for Leia. That is, you know, the the wealthy man's son. His fear of marriage and fear of speaking in front of people is is you know clearly played. I thought for laughs. I mean, we're supposed to see him as kind of a ridiculous man to be married to, but it's also a little comic scene where you return to him and whoever it is that's kind of teaching him and getting him ready for the marriage. And then I thought even the. Uh, in the opening narration, I believe he's referred to as a wonder rabbi, but it's the the kind of lead rabbi of the piece. His little moments are are, are laced with a little bit of comic aspects too. You mentioned, I think, I forget which forget which of you mentioned that he kind of needs to be sort of talked up. He's kind of despairing, and then he kind of peps himself up with a little bit of prompting. And I thought that was both 
an interesting characteristic, but also a kind of a funny guy, a guy who's going to sit there and kind of wilt in the chair, and he's being a little melodramatic even within this world. That character of the rabbi seemed like it was it was slightly comic to me. There are nice moments to this, and yeah, it, when I think of Polish cinema, Daniel, I think of Man of Iron, you know, and the, that kind of era of Polish cinema, and this is definitely very different from that. Well, I think one of the things which... Um uh, made me go back to this film in particular it was, as you know, uh, a few years ago, there was this touring season internationally of Martin Scorsese Presents Classics of Polish Cinema. And on many ways, it is great because the films in, in the program are wonderful. But of course, it gives the impression that Polish cinema um, began uh, with communism and nothing existed before. And it ended with the fall of communism. Now, the reason is, is that those films were kind of um, all owned by former kind of communist film studios, which are now kind of uh, managed on behalf of the state by kind of semi-private companies. And so, so the kind of the pool of films was limited to this, this period. But I think the history of Polish cinema goes beyond that. And, uh, and it does miss out this, this crucial chapter of, of, of kind of Yiddish cinema in the thirties. And also this avant-garde tradition. I mean, one of the guys who acts as a kind of, uh, I think he's credited as a consultant, like a, a dramaturg, is uh, uh, Anatol Stern, who's, you know, a, a Jewish, Polish, uh, futurist poet who um, ended up during the 30s writing mainly scripts. So you have this incredibly kind of rich Jewish uh, avant-garde and uh, non-communist elements, which kind of... Uh, result in this cinema which is uh, the antithesis to what came in the 50s and 60s and 70s i mean there were musicals i mean there were there was a, a communist musical uh called adventure in marienstadt which is actually pretty good it was the first polish color film i think nothing like this and uh and i think it it's interesting that I, all of the characters in Polish culture, certainly recent Polish culture, which touch upon the fantastic, whether it's Stanisław Lem or, or Piotr Szolkin, um, most of them are of Jewish descent. And, and I think this, this, you know, it, it's, it's like Kafka, you know, it, it's kind of these fantastic tales of um, fables and parables. You know, th- this, is, this is where it comes from. I think this is the, the cultural background, which is not, it's not specifically Polish. <laughs> You know, it's 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 Polish Jewish. So we've got the possession. We have the Dybbuk, which is kind of the, I don't know, would you guys consider it the fusing of the two spirits? Or is it more of kind of taking over Leah? Because it seems like it should be the fusing of the two, but it feels like when we have him speaking through her, that it is definitely more his voice than her voice. Well, it's got that bit at the beginning, and I think in the credits, when it's talking about, transmigration of the souls uh, as it does in the beginning of the the play so it I mean it sets up the idea that after the the spell the kind of the spirit goes presumably into the ether and then kind of falls or plunges into layer but you know how how do we address this i mean is it like ghosts i mean are ghosts just like a, a kind of a a, a manifestation of guilt, you know, even if it's not your own guilt, it's guilt. It's it's the guilt of your father, you know. So, I mean, that's the expression of, you know, whether it's a subconscious, whether it's something else. But I think that's that's how I look at that aspect of it. Yeah, I was reading a, a article about Dybbuk's and just the 
the stories and, you know, because there have been people who have gone out and have uh, written down these stories of different possessions throughout the years, just looking at all of the, the typical things that are happening. And it does feel like it's more of a way to rebel against society and especially against a very strict society. I mean, there are so many rules when it comes to life, uh, you know, uh, Judaism uh, existence. I'm surprised that it doesn't happen more because there are just so many of these rules. And then you have a, a younger person like Leah who really you know is is being shafted by the system by her father and you know kind of rebelling out of that so it's always fascinating to me to look at these possession stories as being multi-layered as could it be supernatural or could it be a rebellion could it be just psychological so it was uh, this is yet another instance where i'm like okay what is really happening here or how can we interpret this this uh possession of hers well, I, I see it as a it's a form of dissociation. Uh, it's it's like uh, you know, Asmodeus, you know, sort of like uh, okay, you're you're a nun, like in the in the, the Huxley book, and and uh, the sister the sister Jeanne, you know, which Ken Russell made his film based on the the play based on Huxley's book. The idea that you're a nun and you have certain principles, or or, or you have to live by them. At the same time, you have these sexual urges, and you can't reconcile these two things. So what do you do? You split them, you dissociate them, and you say, okay, it's not me. It's the devil which is kind of possessing me. And that way, you get to kind of uh, carry out or enact whatever impulses are taking over you. At the same time, you're not responsible for them. You know. I guess the modern analog today is Tiger Woods says, I'm a sex addict, as if to say that basically I'm not responsible. This is a medical condition. Therefore, we should put the blame on, I don't know, God uh, for, for making animals like this. You know, it, it's a shifting of the blame. You know, uh, it's like shame, the, the Steve McQueen film. The idea that, you know, there's a lot of debate right now, isn't it, about sex addiction, whether it's a real thing or not. And I think it's a similar thing in this case. The idea that, uh, you know, it's a, it's a way of reconciling uh, layers, kind of uh, her feelings and, and her father's feelings. And, uh, and of course, she can't reconcile them. Uh, her father wants her to marry someone else. So uh, how does she kind of psychologically get out of this pickle? And, uh, you know, and, and you can look at that in uh, uh, rational terms, as I'm painting it, or you can look at it in fantastic terms. The point is, is that you're arriving at the same point. Well, I was just thinking about how that scene played out as such a, you know, particularly like the sort of the trial, the rabbinical court, uh, the midnight. Uh, I think it said that we'll have a, a rabbinical court at midnight to do this, which just sounds very ominous. And yes, you've got all these old bearded men in this room, and then you're bringing in this young woman who is the sort of she's the she's the innocent, but she's also the transgressor, you know, in that in that one scene. And it did sort of seem to me like. I don't know. I, I think I was still trying to figure out how I was supposed to read the character of the rabbi because he seems to be sort of full of it in that scene, even as much as he may be channeling something legitimate. But he, what he seems to be doing is trying to restore the status quo of this this rich man marrying off his daughter to a, a, a rich man's family, you know. And that seems like all these elders are very interested in that. And I thought it was interesting the way the messenger shows up to sort of throw a wrench in that to say that no. Uh, that you know, he basically comes out and says that we didn't hear the spirit say amen, and so therefore they didn't accept the deal. I thought that was an interesting kind of refutation of even the character of the rabbi, who, as we've said, does kind of seem to be a pretty 
a, a force for good in the story, or at least a guy who's trying to follow some form of the rules. But even he is, you know, subject to this idea of what the townspeople might want and what the elders want and what this very rich man might want. Right. He seems to be very concerned about getting the spirit out of her and getting her married off. The setting things right as far as in his mind of getting Leah married to this other man is one of the most important driving factors for him. And it just is like, let's hurry up and do this. Let's get this thing going. And I love this whole idea of putting her on trial or putting the spirit on trial. And of course I'm reminded of like the Salem witch trials and some of that, you know, dissociation that, that Daniel was talking about, but this, (laughs) just this whole idea of following the rules and having these meetings and there are, very specific things that need to be said and and all this kind of ritual that goes along with that. And, you know, looking at a film like the Dybbuk versus something like the exorcist where, you know, there's no trial happening, but they're so formal in the Dybbuk as far as needing to put this person on trial and basically, you know, okay, now the, the spirit has to leave the body. Like that's, that's their way of getting rid of it. There's no holy water and all this kind of stuff. Yes. There's chanting and everything and just her reaction to stuff. Leah's reaction, you know, obviously she's not spinning her head around and spitting out green pea soup or anything. So it's just, I love the comparison of the very sociable, uh, Dybbuk versus, you know, the spirit that possessed Reagan. Well, it's it's an aggrieved spirit. It's not it's not a it's not um, inherently evil as the spirit. It's just basically a wronged spirit. And what they're trying to do in that final scene is to kind of right a wrong. And you know, and that's and when and then why is this spirit pissed off? Why is it in this woman? And uh, why you know what, let's weigh up whether it uh, has a right to be pissed off or not. And they conclude it does, and then they they kind of work out an agreement. And, and so, of course, the the natural agreement at the end is it's like Romeo and Juliet. I mean, she she's reunited with her her her, her lover to be, the destiny love. But but of course, that means death. So often in these films, we 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 have a spirit. I mean, if it's a possession film or a, a ghost movie or whatever, because this, this the Dybbuk is like on the line between like a possessing demon and a ghost. It's kind of a, a very personal ghost that attaches to somebody. Uh, doesn't the word itself mean cling or clinging? Um, so it's this idea of a spirit attaching to somebody. And so often in the way this is treated in horror films, it's like there's a spirit and then you get a little bit of backstory on the spirit as it's, as the story goes along. But in this movie, we, we spend an hour developing the character of the, the young man whose spirit comes back as a sort of semi-malevolent force. You know, So I think that also served to humanize him is that at the end when they're exercising the Dybbuk from Leah, we're not just thinking of her – as a woman that's being exercised, we're thinking of uh, Kanan's soul as being sort of disconnected from anything and, you know, wandering the earth and being tormented. And and there there is that little nod to, well, now that the spirit's out of her, we're going to, now we'll get to you. You know, it's it, it, it seems very much like first priority is getting him out of the girl, and then after that, it's about trying to give this spirit some rest. Um, which I, I, I can't tell at the end if we're supposed to think that anything that the rabbi did really worked that well because of what happens with Leia. But, um, but I do think that notion of showing compassion for the spirit seems to be a huge thing that makes this distinct in my mind from the usual treatment of this subject matter. Well, I, you're going to hate this, but I mean, 
what about as a comparison ghost the Demi Moore movie because basically it's a love story with a fantastic element uh the ending is very different uh, but the interesting ending about the uh, book is how uh, it's it's sad for the the kind of the physical world but for the the spiritual world it's a happy ending because the lovers are reunited it is a a dramatically satisfying ending because at the beginning the lovers are separated and at the end the lovers are reunited. Uh, all it needed was a potter's wheel scene. It's funny that you bring up Ghost because I actually was thinking of another Demi Moore movie when I was watching this. I was thinking of The Seventh Sign for some reason and I guess the whole idea of the the because there was another Dybbuk movie a few years ago uh, I want to say it was The Unborn and uh, just that whole idea of like when the soul enters into a baby and does a baby have a soul and this whole thing and just that uh, in the seventh sign this whole idea of like there aren't enough souls to go around until this woman makes a sacrifice so I guess Demi Moore was uh, was destined to be brought into this conversation in some way. I think that the difference between this film is that really um the the kind of the the, the is a it's the MacGuffin and uh, whereas I think a lot of the the more recent horror films they kind of focus and are preoccupied totally with the MacGuffin at the expense of everything else and uh, you know it, it's just basically it's a it, it's a device to talk about a particular culture uh, and you know a love story in in a particular culture and that's what it is that's it that's its role and its function uh, whereas I think in the more overtly horror films, it's just basically, it's a pretext for setting up shock scenes. And the, this is two different kind of intentions. And they're both legitimate, but they're just two different kind of uh, uses of uh, that kind of possession. Uh, God, I'm hating myself here. Motive. Had this been directed, uh, you know, like a, a Bloomhouse film, we would have had the big jump scare at the end of uh, Leah's face all, you know, painted up, like coming right at the camera. But fortunately, we didn't have that. Well, I was thinking about that when I watched this film, and I just thought about what a feat of acting it was. That scene at the end where she basically stands up, and it's like a long kind of tracking shot of her, uh, or a dolly shot, I guess, where it kind of moves with her as she gets up off the steps and and steps up to the altar and and you know it's just one sustained shot and the way it holds on the acting and it, it allows you to just soak in the mood of the scene is is so much more effective and so much more magical than all the like jump cuts and crazy uh, cgi assisted morphing faces and all that kind of stuff i mean i still enjoy modern horror films but it's true that they fall back on a lot of the same tricks to create scares that i'm not even sure actually work and then you just see the human face on screen for a couple of minutes, go through something uh, that an actor is projecting and it can be extremely powerful. So I thought that last moment with Leia was, was one of the best parts of the movie. I think one of the things I like most about it, it, it is this, this kind of trance like atmosphere, which comes about of the, the technique, which is on the one hand, it, it's seemingly very simple, but at the same time, it's really sophisticated. I mean, the way that none of the shots kind of call, draw attention to themselves as expressionistic. I mean, they're all from conventional angles and the lenses are, you know, they're not too distorting, but the way in which basically it's just kind of dolling in for a close up and then pulling back out or then just tracking slightly, it really, it builds up this very, it is a very like kind of transient kind of atmosphere in this film. 
there are moments of camera work in here that I really enjoyed, especially when they're having one of the trial scenes and we're on all of the old men, the rabbi, and they're just, you know, all in agreement about this stuff. And then the camera just pans over and looks at Leah and then comes back over to these guys. And it's just like so simple, but so effective, just that they are all talking about her, but she is so out of the picture, you know, just let's take a look at her now. Now let's go back to what this is. And just, I love the way that the camera was leading us through so many of these moments. No, I agree completely. My my knowledge of cinema at that period, it, it is patchy, but it, it does, for me at least, it does strike me as a very um, sophisticated film. And uh, and I think it's, uh, it really, um, I think it's an incentive to uh, to look more, not just at Vashinsky's kind of films, but also that whole period as a whole. I mean, it's been written about, I mean, Hoberman's written the, the book on Yiddish cinema, but I think certainly in Poland, um, they, the not the Filmoteca Narodowa, the, the the National Film Archive, they made some new copies of Vashinsky's films a few years ago. The last time I saw Dybbuk uh, at the cinema was uh, the copy, uh, a scan of the Polish internegative. I mean, they have one element in Warsaw, and then the I think the negative is in New York somewhere. Um, but I really hope this film actually comes out in a, a kind of a decent restored copy with uh, adequate subtitles. Well, let's definitely talk a little bit more about that after we take a quick break here. And we're going to play an interview with Yossi Chahez. I'm probably butchering his name. Chahez, author of Between Worlds, Dybbuk's Exorcist, and Early Modern Judaism. And we'll play that just after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well... AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first-run seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of current, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine for his or her guests, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro Detroit area, the state of Michigan, or occasionally the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features in a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm hometown atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. 
please visit our website, cinemadetroit.com, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, zip code 48201. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. mathematics of murder and menace. The BB and BC podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B-movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com Let's go to work. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. My name is Yossi Chayes. Well, I should say that's one of my names because uh, you can't probably spell the name just from hearing it. So I should tell you it's spelled C-H-A-J-E-S. The only place I can say the name and have somebody spell it correctly is Germany. Because, in fact, that's where they first wrote it out and they know how it's supposed to look and sound. My American passport still says Jeffrey on it and my uh, my birth my synagogue circumcision certificate says Joseph on it, and everyone here calls me Yossi for the last 30 years. So anyway, it's it's kind of a mess. I should never have gone into it. My publications sometimes figure you'll find them under Jeffrey Chayas, Yossi Chayas, Joseph Chayas. I work for a few people, apparently. So I have a lot of names, and I teach in the Department of Jewish History at the University of Haifa in Israel. You are a fellow Wolverine. How did you decide to go into Jewish history as your major? While a student in Ann Arbor, as an undergraduate, I moved pretty quickly from my original thoughts, which were somewhat politically oriented. I thought maybe I would pursue a career in politics. Um, and I had other interests as well, music and theater. Anyway, I, I moved quickly in my freshman year to um, an interest in mysticism of various sorts. And I began studying whatever was offered in the different departments. Great, great books of China class, which exposed me to Taoism, to, uh, to Dick Mann's legendary transpersonal psychology courses. Again, it all happened pretty quickly in my freshman year. I uh, I thought it would be particularly appropriate given my family history, which includes many generations of rabbis to explore the mysticism of uh, of the Jewish people. And I began studying uh, Kabbalah 
and thought that I would be a fairly straightforward scholar of Kabbalah until, for various reasons, uh, crazy reasons, I ended up staying in Ann Arbor to do my master's degree. The best thing I could figure out to do at the time was to to do that master's degree in European history. I thought it would set me up well for subsequent studies of of Kabbalah and Jewish culture, but I thought, well, I'll get some good basic professional training as a European historian. I did complete that degree and then eventually pursued my PhD in Jewish history at Yale, uh, mostly because at the time there was nobody in Ann Arbor who could really supervise the kind of PhD I was interested in writing. But uh, from the time I got my MA in history at, at Michigan, I was dedicated to pursuing a study of Jewish thought and Kabbalah that would be a kind of integration of uh, of history and the study of a mystical thought, some kind of uh, middle path. You know, so I still see myself as, professionally speaking, basically an historian. But I also teach a lot of classes on the history of Judaism as, as part of my work and my own writing still has a lot to do with magic and Kabbalah. One thing is sure, and that is I didn't become an economic historian or a political historian, something of that sort. I'm familiar with the the Torah. I'm familiar with the Talmud. But where does Kabbalah fit into the realm of Judaism? Kabbalah is a kind of a general name for medieval Jewish mysticism. I don't even love using the term mysticism because it really isn't a term that is that is really at home in the Jewish tradition. We don't have a word that corresponds to it in Hebrew, for example. But we do have something going back uh, at least 2,000 years or more that you could probably translate into English as esotericism or the idea that the tradition also contains a secret dimension and that there are secrets that are shared past from generation to generation by people who have received them to people who are worthy of receiving them. And one of the, the interesting, strange, quirky things about the history of Judaism is that although the Torah is is called the written Torah, or uh, the written tradition, you might say, um, because it was it originated as as a text that was that was committed to writing, the rest of the Jewish tradition is called the oral tradition, even though for hundreds and even well over a thousand years, most of that oral material has has also been committed to writing. That's to some extent an unfortunate outcome of persecutions that led Jews in various periods to believe that if they didn't commit something to writing and the wrong person was was killed, that the tradition would die. So what I'm, what I'm trying to, to get to is is to say that the Kabbalah is one form of Jewish esotericism or se- secrets of Judaism. It's a body of secret knowledge that has, to some extent, been committed to writing, but, but still uh, undoubtedly has much unwritten that is till our own day passed within closed circles of of Kabbalists or Jewish mystics, if you like. And I guess I should say one more thing, and that is just that from probably about the late 13th century, although this is strictly speaking esoteric material, there's a kind of constant popularization or tendency to further 
popularize and distribute this lore among ever broader circles of people, you might think that I should have said among ever wider circles of Jews, and that that is largely true, that it's a Jewish secret lore, but from from the 13th century already, we have a lot of evidence for Christian interest in Kabbalah, and by the 14th, 15th centuries, we have we have something called Christian Kabbalah, which which uh, develops for hundreds of years and has, to some extent, a kind of life of its own. Um, but uh, you know, this we think of the interest in Kabbalah by by Madonna today as uh, some crazy expression of how Kabbalah has become marketed to a general audience. And it's true that, you know, you can't compare 20, 20th or 21st century marketing to 16th century marketing. But uh, in fact, you know, as soon as the, the Zohar, the greatest work of the Kabbalah was printed in the 16th century, it reached a lot of places. A lot of people read it and a lot of people got interested in it. These are fairly perennial aspects of, of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism. So what are some of the things that would be contained uh, in the Jewish mysticism? Like, I'm trying to think of like a, a, a Christian, um, something similar so that I can kind of ground myself as far as one to the other. I mean, Christian mysticism, if you can take a, a, an extreme generalization, Christian mysticism is usually autobiographical accounting of mystical experience, some kind of expression of the, the grace of revelation coming over the mystic and the ineffable experience of that in the mystic's subjective experience. And uh, Jewish mysticism has a more objectivist orientation and that that comes out in a, a few different ways. On the one hand, um, Jews are much more confident than Christians that they can create a situation that will result in a mystical experience or will result in mystical knowledge. Some of that you could perhaps attribute to a kind of more magical character in general that Kabbalah has as opposed to Christian mysticism for the most part. And if you look at things sort of magically, it becomes almost like a recipe. If you do this, that, and the other thing, then you can be fairly confident that you'll get the results you're looking for. So Kabbalists have that tendency to confidence that they know what, what is required to to get the results they're looking for. Part of Kabbalah is also objectivist in its confident description of the divine realms, much more than I think is true in most of Christian Kabbalah, Jewish, or not Christian Kabbalah, Christian mysticism in general. Jewish Kabbalah is quite confident about its mapping of the terrain of the Godhead. Um, it's not something that Jews come back from experiencing and say, wow, it's beyond description, it's beyond words, we can't even talk about what we've seen and experienced. Um, Jews who write Kabbalah have tended to write very ob objectively about the terrain of the divine that they either experienced or uh, inferred or whatever. Um, so there's that as well. And I guess another objective thing that ties into the, the preparation side of things is uh, in 
I would say, more magical expressions of Kabbalistic expertise. And you see that in some areas that are relatively well-known in popular culture, like the golem idea, the idea that a rabbi could make um, a kind of animated humanoid or anthropoid creature, an artificial man, an artif- the artificial intelligence you know, that's been talked about in Jewish sources for 2,000 years, how you can take a, a mound of clay and shape it into the form of a human being and bring it to life. Um, and we have quite a few recipes in the Jewish esoteric tradition for doing just that. There's a, a very interesting German silent film called The Golem, which makes an interesting counterpart as well to the 1937 Dybbuk film. But in fact, Dybbuk is the other great example of, of a, a, an area in which Kabbalists have brought their mystical powers to a practical problem, and that is how to, how to exercise uh, an evil spirit from a person possessed. That's a job that has typically gone to the Kabbalists over the last 500 years, and, and even before that, going back 2,000 years, the presumption has been that people who have the power to successfully exercise a, an evil spirit are, are, are precisely the rabbis who have some knowledge of the esoteric lore of the tradition. Now, I'm, I'm sure you've seen uh, William Friedkin's film and or read uh, William Peter Blady's book. How does uh, a Dybbuk compare to more of a Christian type of possession? The most profound difference is in the identity of the spirit. In the Christian cases, one generally finds people are diagnosed as possessed when a devil or even numerous devils are found to be inhabiting their bodies and taking them over. And the exorcist's job is to get rid of those demons. We do have, by the way, historical evidence for Christians themselves identifying evil spirits as ghosts of souls familiar to them in the early modern period. But priests who are in charge with conducting the exorcisms and uh, dealing with these situations uh, generally were determined to convince people that this was uh, not only an incorrect diagnosis of the possession, but in fact a heretical one. And uh, in the Jewish context, we find from about the 16th century, not about, we find from the 16th century an increasing tendency to identify evil spirits possessing people as uh, precisely that, as, as, as ghosts of members of the community who recently passed away in most cases. In other words, uh, a Dybbuk is a person who has died and for whatever reason is not going through the typical afterlife passage to a kind of purgatory and ultimately, hopefully, to a heavenly abode, but is uh, sort of stuck and seeking shelter or assistance by possessing the body of a living person or just possessing a living person who then becomes the mouthpiece for that disembodied soul. One of the things that I found that was quite interesting in studying the exorcism techniques over the generations in the Jewish tradition 
was that with this new diagnosis in the 16th century came uh, new exorcism techniques that were designed to deal with the difference between having to just get rid of a demon and having to deal with a Dybbuk, who is basically a second human victim of the story. Even if even if the Dybbuk is a, an aggressor, the Dybbuk is an aggressor for whom you might feel a certain amount of sympathy, given the fact that you know, whatever they did in their life, and it might have been something horrible, every Dybbuk story will will impress the reader with just how high a price has been paid for it and and the exorcist will feel like it's their responsibility to not only serve the victim of the possession but to, to somehow try to alleviate the suffering of the dibbuk as well in the process that's a pretty big difference why the 16th century why did this kind of become prevalent at that time do you know that kind of question will not have an answer written on a on a page of a 16th century book and forces me to speculate. But if I had to, I would say that it is part and parcel of a much greater tendency in the 16th century to focus on the fate of the individual. The medieval and earlier religious materials have a much more communal orientation. You might call it a more of a herd mentality. People are part of a group. Their fate is the fate of the group. And uh, famously, uh, Jakob Burkhardt, the, fam- the historian of the Renaissance, spoke about the Renaissance as the period of history in which we saw in the West the birth of the individual. And of course, these are very big sort of generalizations to to come out with, but it's hard to avoid feeling that in the 16th century, many aspects of Jewish culture, in particular, evince this new concern with the fate of the individual. And it finds expression, in, in again, in other areas as well. Uh, not unrelated to the Dybbuk is the rise of importance in the doctrine of reincarnation among Jews in the 16th century. Again, one could ask the same question. Why do the Jews all of a sudden in the 16th century become so obsessed with reincarnation? You don't find reincarnation in any work of classical Judaism. You don't find it in the Bible. You don't find it in the Talmud. All of a sudden, in the 13th century, you find very cautious references to it in some Kabbalistic sources. But in the 16th century, everything is about your transmigratory journeys, (laughs) And the great Kabbalist of the 16th century is someone who can look at you and know all of your incarnations and why you've been born as you have this time around and what you need to accomplish before you die. And you need to know that too, because if you don't know what you need to do before you die, you're going to have to be born again. So really the best I can do is you could say the Dybbuk is... Uh, redefined in the 16th century as part of the centralization of the doctrine of reincarnation because uh, a dibbuk is basically a, a kind of reincarnation that happens but in a bad way rather than the person who died being reincarnated as a baby and getting another chance they're not actually getting properly reincarnated they're, they are getting reincarnated though quite literally put back into a body just not from square one. 
and they're doing so in a way that is usually detrimental to their host. Um, but if I say that, then you can rightly ask me, well, why did reincarnation become more central in the 16th century? To which I would probably just go back to Burkhardt and this very general sense that in the early modern period, if you want to use a, a broader term than the Renaissance, in the early modern period, we see a, a new interest in in the fate and plight and possibility of the individual that's unprecedented. This is one of many expressions of of that kind of individual orientation. That's a speculation, but it's not unconnected to other things that we know about the period. Now, was this the same period that you were studying and, and writing about when you wrote Between Worlds? Absolutely, yeah. My book, Between Worlds, focuses on the 16th century with some interest as well in, in how things will play out in the 17th century already in kind of a different environment. The 16th century is the era of the, the great formative accounts of the book possession and Jewish sources. And by the 17th century, we already have, especially into the second half of the 17th century, we already have the equivalent of uh, what you might call like horror, horror stories being published in the Jewish world that are not exactly, you know, what you would get a, a couple hundred years later when they really are pure entertainment. But they're kind of a mixture of uh, entertainment and moral literature, you know, in the sense that if, you know, if you read these things, if you're, you can be titillated, but you also might be afraid that if you're immoral, you could end up in one of these horrible <laughs> ghost stories yourself. So they have that sort of double function. But yeah, I was very, I've always been really interested in the transition to modernity and Kabbalah and magic. And looking at the Dibbuk material was a great way of combining all of those things that I think are really interesting. The Dibbuk book that I wrote was the first, the first thing that anyone had written on the subject in Jewish culture. I'm happy to say that on my desk right now is a book that is hot off the presses in, here in Israel. And it basically begins where my book left off. It deals with 17th and 18th century materials. You know, the first footnote in this book, which is, I don't know, looks like a 500-page book, 573 pages, the first footnote is to my book. And I'm glad now somebody picked up, picked up, picked up the ball and ran with it another couple hundred years. It's actually focusing on uh, Yiddish materials from Eastern Europe. That actually gets us a bit closer to Ansky sources. In other words, the actual folkloristic materials that Ansky uses to construct his modern heretical myth are probably better seen now through this latest study than they are in, in my own. But um, I suppose also it probably should be noted if the interview is supposed to be about the movie that Ansky, um, in addition to everything else, well, he wasn't just a playwright. In fact, he, he wasn't even close to just being a playwright. He was uh, he was an ethnographer and was trying to create a Jewish ethnographic museum. Uh, and during the First World War, he was going around with an ethnographic expedition to all kinds of little towns in Eastern Europe collecting stories and artifacts of various kinds and even recording old chants. I think they had some kind of like first generation wax 
recording device. Unfortunately, a lot of the material, I think the huge majority was subsequently lost in the turbulent decades that ensued. But um, but there's no doubt that Ansky himself, who was basically uh, you know a secular, you know, a non-religious Jew from the big city, first began to uh, become became aware of the book stories that uh, in in the course of this ethnographic expedition, and, and so his raw materials were almost certainly gathered primarily from these these travels to the little cities and and uh, stories that he was told and that his team recorded during those years. So that's the the raw materials that that he would weave together to tell the story that he wanted to tell, which was ultimately not just uh, a uh, acute representation of of ethnographic material, but I think something more profound. Well, the the raw materials were gathered as part of his his great ethnographic expedition. It's a huge topic, really. I mean, there's there, there are entire books written on this play and its reception and its and the different productions and the and the sets and the costumes and the the dra- drama- dramaturgy. Uh, you, it's a it's a, it's it's a field. And Ansky's been the subject of a lot of writing in the last 10, 20 years. So there's a really tremendous amount of interest. And there really was uh, you know, never a hit on the Yiddish or Hebrew stage that compared to it. The study of the Hebrew stage, the study of uh, Yiddish language films, like so many things, this can lead to so many possible areas of, of study. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure if you had spoken to someone who was an expert on Russian theater, they would have given you a very different sense of what Ansky was doing in that play. Although, uh, although I think that ultimately the interpretations don't have to be one at the expense of the other. Like, there's a general tendency in early 20th century Russian theater to create these kind of almost like religious experiences on stage. And to have, you know, the stage becomes a kind of oh, a sacred uh, altar. You know, uh, maybe that's not the, the best word, but there is a kind of visceral religious dimension to what's happening in the space of the theater. And, you know, so for, so Ansky was, was able to exploit that, or not exploit it, but he was part of that. And I think that the, the theatrical elements of of what he did are not, are not indebted to Jewish mythology from 2,000 years ago. They're indebted to the theatrical conventions and fashions of his of his age. But it, but the message that he wanted to get a, that he wanted to express and the the materials that he was able to bring to to bear to express that message perfectly suited the fashions of of the Russian stage at that time you know, so much so that the you know the kind of the most I'm no expert but everybody's heard of of Stanislavski the great Russian director you know, he he was interested in putting on a production i think it was only his untimely death that for some reason it didn't happen but uh but this was not meant to be. A, this was very much not meant to be a play for for Jewish audiences. And I I don't think I, I can't say for sure about the film. I know it was it's a Yiddish film, so you could say, well, how could it have been intended for anything but a Jewish audience? But uh, it's worth checking to see whether when it first came out, it it had subtitles in Polish, for example, because it's absolutely the case that uh, 
that the theatrical versions of the play in the 1920s were very much directed at non-Jewish audiences. There was no sense in which this was a, a Jewish play for Jewish audiences. Doesn't mean there weren't there wasn't tremendous Jewish interest and the Jews weren't going to the theater and seeing it. But um, you know, the earliest directors of the play were not Jews. They didn't even understand Yiddish or Hebrew. They say that's one of the reasons, by the way, that so much dialogue was removed from the early rewritings of the play, because the directors didn't understand Jewish languages. You mentioned uh, Der Golem and then the the Dybbuk film. How does the Dybbuk become part of popular culture in the 20th century? There's no doubt that it is the work of, of Ansky, the man who wrote the original Dybbuk play that the film was... Uh, was based on the, the 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 screenplay as an adaptation of Ansky's stage play, and I think that uh, it's undoubtedly the case that, it, that although Eastern European Jews would have been familiar with the, the term Dybbuk and uh, stories circulated and were, would would have been known to people, that the real mainstream popularization of this material comes with the astounding success of Ansky's play from the time of its its uh, first productions in the 1920s it had a kind of explosive impact uh when it when it first appeared and and became such a dominant production in both the Hebrew and Yiddish theater worlds that uh, was, according to what I've read at least, it was hard for Yiddish and Hebrew theater companies to even produce other other plays. Everybody always wanted to see the Dybbuk. Um, the secret of this, its success is, of course, interesting to think about. Why does it achieve such tremendous success? But, uh, but there's no doubt that it did achieve tremendous success and was produced over and over again and in Yiddish and in Hebrew, and and uh, we have this 1937 Yiddish film produced in Poland on location uh, that uh, obviously until today attracts uh, no small amount of interest, although I'm sure that more people are familiar with the various reboots of the Dybbuk that, that have been produced in, in Hollywood and, and around the world. Uh, over the last uh, nearly 100 years since then. And what are some of those, when, and what, have any of those interested you? As you mentioned, my academic interest, such as it is in the subject, was always focused on the 16th and 17th century material. And the only reason I I began taking an interest in the, the Dybbuk play uh, well, let's say the original cause of uh, the original impetus to, to to take a closer look at it was uh, when Israel's main theater company, the Bima Theater, that premiered the Dybbuk in the 20s, wanted to do a revival of it about maybe 17, 18 years ago. They called me in as a consultant. I thought it was kind of amusing to think that I could be a consultant to a theater company doing a production of the Divic and agreed to do it. And this forced me to carefully read the, the play and try to understand what this was and how it related to my materials. But I, I very quickly understood that my materials didn't really have that much to do with Ansky's play. 
and uh, the Amphi's play needed a kind of a reading of it, a reading uh, of its own, which I've developed. I mean, I'm I have a I have a kind of a spin on the on the play that uh, I haven't yet published, but I hope I hope to at some point. Uh, that's all to make a, a short story long, and the, the short story is I'm not really an expert on all of the theatrical and film and operatic and ballet reincarnations of of the Dybbuk. I mean, I think, I hate to say this, but I think on, on a podcast it's legit to say, just look up Dybbuk on Wikipedia and, you know, you'll see a list of popular culture reboots of this story. One of my pet peeves has been since I started looking at Ansky's play, which was written you know, in the teens of the 20th century, one of my pet peeves has been how the various theatrical and film adaptations have uh, been very cavalier about their treatment of the script. I say that as a person who loves the theater and and even had some personal involvement with it, you know, years ago, and I know everybody is allowed to do whatever they want. But, you know, coming at it as someone who, I mean, maybe this is the typical complaint of someone who read the book before they saw the movie. But in this case, it's not even exactly a book. It's a, it's a play. So what do you do when you take a play and you make a movie out of it? Or it turns out, what do you do when you take a play and just decide to produce it again a few years later? My feeling is rather than giving the original play a good reading, people have uh skimmed the surface of it and taken a very superficial story, a kind of forbidden love story, and made a melodramatic episode out of it without really appreciating some of the more interesting, to my mind, elements that are in, in the original script. To me, the real interest is in the way Ansky created a kind of modern, subversive, heretical myth. Like he took ancient themes and you know recast them in a way that nobody seems nobody seems to have picked up on so the the whole sort of heretical side of of the play is very hard to see now when you look at most of these these versions of it including i'm sorry to say the film you don't really get this uh subversive religious meaning that I think is part of part of the original story. In the film, it seems that the person who is interested or, or practicing Kabbalah is not necessarily a good guy. Is that pretty typical to kind of uh, vilify someone who is into Kabbalah? No, it's not. And honestly, I don't think that that, that character is meant to be a bad guy. <laughs> I don't dispute that you can get that impression from looking at the movie, but I'm not sure if that's the only impression that one could get even from the movie. He is a, a person who, that character, his name is Hanan. He's a person who's, who, at a young age, has devoted himself to a kind of ascetic piety and uh, devotion to the divine He's a person who's who's literally immersed in his his whole his whole being in the divine realms, and yet he falls in love with a beautiful girl. And it turns out, as you find out only later in the play, that before he or the girl were were born, their fathers had agreed that if each if, if one had a boy and one had a girl, they would marry them off. So they're actually fated 
to be together, but neither of them knows this at the time, and her father has forgotten the promise, and his father has died. But even bracketing that, Hanan, the you know, this protagonist who, who you got the impression was a bad guy, you could say he's distracted from the divine only by something stronger than his love for God, and that is his love for this young woman. And and her name, this is in the movie too, her name is Leah. And you can, I don't know if you caught it you know, from the subtitles, but at some point in his reveries in the first act of the play, he says, Leah, that's, it, you can break that word in Hebrew into lo hey. Leah is spelled in Hebrew, lamed aleph hey, which you can break into two words, lo Hashem, not God. I want the choice that is the not God choice. And I'm going to go all the way now with my choice for the woman instead of Instead of going to heaven, I want to go to be with this woman. I'm choosing this woman over heaven. And and that's what he does. And the whole play is nothing but that in a way. And and she and she also wants that. And they choose each other at the end of the play. In death, they choose to be together. Um but I don't think any of this comes as a is a criticism of of either of their characters, and most of the readings that you'll see of the play that don't deal with the kind of heretical dimension of it, and that is, in other words, all of the things that you'll ever read about the play until I publish my article, they'll all say, oh, it's about uh, the importance of of uh, uh, free love that people shouldn't have to have arranged marriages, that Ansky was a reformer and he was a revolutionary and he was a radical and this was a way of using traditional sources to make the argument for free love. Of course, nobody who who makes that, uh, nobody who offers that interpretation asks themselves why, if that's the case, the whole play is predicated upon the fact that the fathers had already made a deal for the kids to get married. No, in the future at some point. So uh, to me, that's all, it's really secondary. And if you just know one rabbinic legend that bases itself on a biblical narrative from Genesis chapter 6, in which the, the, the children of God, the sons of God, the sons of God see the daughters of man and, and choose them. This is, uh, this is a verse, you know, Genesis 6-2, that doesn't get very elaborated in the Bible, but there's all kinds of intertestamental literature and rabbinic literature um, about these fallen angels. Basically, what's, a fall, what's this kind of original fallen angel? It's an angel. It's a, it's, a, it's a son of God, someone who's already in heaven with God, who sees a woman on the earth and says, you know what? I'm going to go for the girl. Heaven is very nice. It's very sweet. It's very pretty. It's very comfy, you know? But wow, I'm, so much, I'm so much more into being with that woman than anything they have to offer in heaven. So, to my mind, if there's a mythical uh, story that's at the core of the Dib book, that's the, that's the story. And I think that it's really interesting that that heresy doesn't originate in the 20th century with Ansky. That's a heresy that's been preserved in in 
in ancient Near Eastern literature for over 2,000 years, maybe 3,000 years. We have this idea that you might want to give up heaven for a beautiful girl. You know, the word heresy actually means in Greek, choose. You're choosing something else. It's true. You can say that what Ansky brings to it, what the Dybbuk brings to it is this like romantic love that, that, uh, you don't see that so much in Genesis 6, that they have a romantic love, you know. There's a real uh, statement of meaning and purpose and choice in Hanan's pursuit of this not-God option and his pursuit of Leah. I think this was an important part of what Anthony was trying to accomplish. And, and, and he's not alone in that. Quite a few Jewish writers in the early 20th century tried their hand at creating kind of modern, heretical versions of traditional stories. And in, in this case, what I'm saying is even in a way more sophisticated because he's drawing on ancient subversive material that was retained in the tradition. The tradition held on to a subversive teaching like, guess what? Sometimes even angels don't want to be with God. They would rather be with a woman, you know, and it, this, and he's, he's in a way awakened this ancient myth for the, for the modern reader or the modern theater goer. So I think that's really very powerful. And if you, once you have that clear and you go back and start reading the script, especially the original scripts, I, it's, it's the earlier versions of the play. I should say parenthetically at least that the, uh, that Ansky probably wrote the play more or less simultaneously in Russian and Yiddish versions and then it was almost immediately translated into Hebrew by, Is- by the man who would become Israel's national poet, uh, Chaim Nachman Bialik. And then you have, so you have sort of three authentic early expressions of this play and then you have all of the adaptations subsequently, including the, the film uh, the adaptation, but they will uh, because they because the people who did the adaptations either didn't see or didn't care about the mythic core of the play as I understand it, they they literally cut out all of the dialogue that makes sense once you understand that it's that Ansky was playing with this sub- subversive motif and you know this dance with the devil. This is what, you know, because so much important dialogue was cut out of the film, someone like you can watch it and think Hanan is a bad guy. If you would, if you would have gotten the, like, the full impression from, from a fuller screenplay or, you know, script, you, you would have known that Hanan is, is not a bad guy. You'd have, in a way, you know, I should think sympathy for him. But, uh, the caricature that's left after they, after they reduce the, the, you know, the play to, literally a fraction of its original length and and uh, remove so many really pregnant statements uh by the by the central characters you know well it's just you you you, you can't even see anything beyond it other than it, that it's a kind of uh ever this a, a theater piece of its time you know and everything that that implies romantic mystery with some some quaint folkloristic elements. Tell me more about when uh, your approach to kind of be the consultant for this. What what was that experience like for you? It was interesting and a lot of fun, as I recall. Probably the problem of producing the Dybbuk has only 
gotten more pronounced over the the decades. But I, I should think that you know if you look in the 1937 film, the actors in that film who were playing religious Jews were mostly not religious Jews, but they were living in Poland where they could not have missed many life experiences with such Jews. They're members of their own families and you know who knows where they came from before they wound up in Warsaw. But if you come to Israel in the 19, this was in the 1990s, so you have secular Israelis playing religious Jews from 100 years ago or whatever, even if they don't make it in such a period piece. The the point is the the alienation from the folk life of Eastern European Jewry has only grown with time. And the, the director of the play who asked me to consult was interested in getting my help to make the actors feel like they had some connection to this lost world. He had a few things that he wanted me to do, but one of them was to, for example, to, to teach old Hasidic chants, musical chants to these young actors and to try and get them into the spirit of, of Hasidism through, through real experience chanting old kind of Hasidic mystical chants. So, that was one of the things that I did with them. As a director, he was also interested in uh, incorporating exorcism techniques into the production. So one of the things that he asked me to do just one-on-one -on -one with him was to provide him with uh, a collection of exorcism rituals from which he could choose and that he could he could dramatize in his in his new play and somewhat predictably, I, I should say now, uh, somewhat predictably he. He particularly liked exorcism techniques that had some kind of sexual dimension. So uh, he, he looked for the most shocking material that I could I could come up with, and that's that's exactly the material that he he chose to use. Um, I did try at the time to to turn him on to my reading of the play and to convince him not to make these draconian cuts in the dialogue of precisely the places that would tip off a sensitive viewer to what's to what's going on on a deeper level in the drama. But um, in that, I was wholly unsuccessful. I've yet to see a production of the, of the play that evinces an awareness of, of this kind of mythical underbelly. And I think that's a shame. I'm curious to, to read your article now. Well, I hope to write it up. I was glad that you asked to speak with me because I thought it would force me to look over my material again. And, and in about a month and a half, I'll go to Frankfurt, Germany for a conference on monsters in the Jewish tradition. And also thinking that uh, that sort of thing would force me to finally polish my my article and send it out for publication, well, I agreed to do that. So I'm sort of taking it. I haven't been working on this stuff for the better part of a decade, but thanks to uh, thanks to you and the invitation in Frankfurt, hopefully I'll get back to it and write it up properly and, and get it out there. That's my hope. I'd be very curious to know what kind of other Jewish monsters there are. I'll find out myself, I suppose, when I get to uh, to Frankfurt. But for now, you know, the the golem is kind of the pre-Frankenstein Frankenstein. I guess the 
the Jews have provided some fodder for modern horror writers willy-nilly. I'll find out if there are any other good monsters when I get to Frankfurt. Divix and Frankenstein, not too bad. I think that there might be some vampires lurking here or there, but uh, I haven't seen any vampires. So what else are you working on these days? A few years ago, I decided to take responsibility for making sense of the history of Kabbalistic diagrams. And uh, these are things that, you know, if you pick up any given book on Kabbalah, you'll see the author has used a diagram for the cover of their book, but they'll never tell you what the diagram means, where it's from, what it's what it's diagramming, other than the very simple, you know, tree of life, with, which is usually uh, just the 10 circles connected by 22 channels that uh, people are people who've had some exposure to Kabbalah are familiar with. Uh, the whole field of Kabbalistic diagrams has been more or less untouched. And it's a whole genre of, of, of Kabbalah, of Jewish esotericism. So it's kind of crazy to be in the 21st century and there are hundreds of diagrammatic manuscripts that have never been studied. Nobody knows who made them, why they made them, who they made them for, what, you know, this whole way of of relating to the divine. And uh, it has ritual aspects. It certainly goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of our conversation about the objective orientation of Kabbalah. There, you might say they're kind of maps of divinity. How do you read a map of the divine? How did they do it? And you know, there's a tremendous amount of variation. And it turns out it's, uh, it's enough material to keep me going as long as I have strength and interest and pursuing it. I have to just ask myself whether that's it for me. Like, now I'm just a Kabbalistic diagram guy now for the next 20 years, or if I'll give it, an, I'll give it a good run and then I'll move on to something else and just leave it unfinished and let somebody else come along and keep going with it. All right, we are back, and we are talking about the Dybbuk. Now, Daniel, you mentioned a little bit about the film print itself, and I know there was a, an attempt at a restoration a few years ago, and I'm wondering if that's where these subtitles that we've been talking about through so much of the discussion came into play, because I don't imagine that this was subtitled maybe at all before the uh, late 90s? Does that sound right to you? Do you think that the, this was played in English um, theaters before that? Well, there's, um, I, again, I, I've not uh, in any detail researchers at all, but remember, of course, the film was designed not just for a domestic audience, but for export as well. <laughs> so, of course, prints did go abroad. I mean, there, there was, uh, I think that there certainly was a, a kind of a, a print in the the National Film Archive in England, and I think that the version which we're the the video version we're referring to was kind of patched together from various versions and cut downs and kind of you know to this kind of two hour length, and I think that's when that appeared. Sort of I think was it eighty nine or late eighties, early nineties, but nothing's really been done since. And um, you know I I, I am. Uh, I, I've heard uh, um, nothing concretely, but I, I think something is underway to, to kind of do something with it. Certainly, the version I saw at the the, uh, the film Attack in Narodava was the best version I'd seen, but of course, it was completely 
it, well, I'm not even sure it was even subtitled in Polish. I think it was the the lector, if I remember. I could, it was a few years ago. Yeah, I love the New York Times article by Richard Shepard where he describes the film as uh, it is a triumph of persistence that has assembled this 1937 film from pieces as mauled and scattered about the globe as the people for whom it was made to be seen. Oh, wow. Just a yeah, very nice uh, – <laughs> nice description of the film print as well as what happened to so many of the people that were involved in this and so much of their audience as well. Yeah, that's still so crazy to me. That becomes a a factor in the movie, even though the movie was not predicting it necessarily, but surely it was kind of hovering over their, their consciousness at the time. Well, I think it's like, like the scene with the grave of the, the houses. It's, it's always been subject to pogroms and persecutions. So it just, just, uh, it, uh, but it is it is a great metaphor. I mean, this idea of you know being between two worlds. You know, I mean, the it, it, even in terms of the Polish context, you know, you're between kind of a, a you know Yiddish speaking community and a Polish community. You know, kind of Judaism and Catholicism, or in the case of Ansky, you know, kind of the Russian Empire, and you know, and it, so it's it's. And then, of course, now I mean, you've got this 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 whole situation now is sort of in 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 Poland. Okay, how do you conceive of Poland? How do you conceive of um, of Jews? Um, because, of course, the communities represented and who made the film are not assimilated; uh, they're Polish Jewish. So, how do you think about these things? How do you think about these films? Because I think one of the interesting things about the way that the, the book has been written about. It's always in the context of Yiddish language cinema, which is perfectly understandable. But I would like to see more. I would like to see it in an overview of of Polish cinema. So if there was anything else like the Polish classics, I would like to see a film like the Dybbuk and some of the avant-garde films of the 20s included as well. Because Poland isn't just films against communism in black and white or with a kind of a, a deathly kind of a Catholic lecturing tone. It's actually fantastic. Uh, it can be fantastic. And I think certainly the films, which not just myself, but I think a lot of people have gravitated towards, whether it's Szuławski's films, whether it's Borowczyk or Wojciech Haas, they are fantastic uh, in terms of their interest in, you know, whether it's Polanski with The Devil or, 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 or Dance of the Vampires or Haas, you know, which, of course, the, the, the sanatorium under the hourglass is based on Bruno Schultz, who, of course, is Jewish and who died during the war. So, of course, you know, it would be nice to kind of reconceive, I think, Polish cinema as having these aspects as well. Well, it was, it's interesting, the whole idea of the Yiddish cinema and just, you know, even though this was made in Poland, that it wasn't necessarily a Polish language film, that it was made in the language that it could be exported in for more people to see it than just Poles. Well, it, that reflects the ethnic makeup of Poland at the time and the fact that there were three and a half million more people to see that film than there were 10 years later. God, it's, it's so depressing when you say it that way. Yeah. For good reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> genuinely depressing it's been interesting you know when i'm out there and i'm looking for articles about the dybbuk or um you know things about uh dybbuk themselves and i keep running across these um well more than anything i've been running across some sort of paranormal tv show where it's one of these like ghost story shows and they're doing you know the reenactments of what happened and all this and it all has to do with this thing called a dybbuk box, which 
I don't know if it's more of a modern convention, but it feels like uh, it's kind of captured people's uh, imaginations lately where somebody buys – it's such a typical thing. you know. Somebody buys a box on – and now I think it's on eBay. They buy a box <laughs> on eBay. It's supposed to be this heirloom or whatever, and then it ends up having an evil spirit inside of it. And it, now it's like – so there are many interpretations of the story uh, both on TV and – now in movies, and I want to say that that uh, the possession movie that uh, John was, did you mention that earlier? Or was that you, Daniel? No, I mentioned yeah. it kind of in my. I was saying that when I was watching this movie, and I was thinking like, uh, I, I I saw that that film existed, and I was I used it as a comparison for just how like hackneyed uh, it felt compared to this. You know, even though this the movie the possession is from 2012, and the Dybbuk is like you said almost 80 years old, the Dybbuk is still a better treatment of the of the idea. Well, there was one interesting film from from last year, um, a Polish film, well, a Polish-Israeli co-production called uh, Demon by Marcin Vrona. Uh, Unfortunately, it was his last film. Uh, It wasn't based on the Ansky play, but it was it it kind of used the 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 kind of Dubuk as a as a kind of a plot device, Um, and it tells the story. uh, It's familiar of a of of a guy from. from London, who ends up going to Poland to to marry a Polish girl, and uh, uh, he's to inherit a house uh, from the girl's father, and then they find a, a a skull in the garden, and then during the kind of the 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 the, the wedding, uh, he he kind of gets he gets possessed by the spirit of the murdered girl, and uh, and that film is is interesting because it tries to combine. Not entirely successfully, but it's interesting nevertheless that the kind of the, the, the kind of the shock devices of the modern horror we're talking about with a kind of a more kind of a, a social satire, almost farce and comedy. Um, again, just like the way that the 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 play in the film is this kind of a mashup of you know various genres. I mean, this film as well is is a kind of it's got a strong ominous atmosphere some shocks with some sort of social comedy scenes sometimes it works sometimes it cancels each other out but it is an interesting kind of uh, a um, third way between these two poles of this more classical horror with this kind of more modern horror yeah, as soon as you mentioned a man being possessed by a woman's spirit i'm just like oh like all of me with steve martin and lily tomlin you put edwina back in bowl, back in bowl. edwina back, back in bowl. Horrifying. Daniel, you seem to be a little bit more aware of the play and just like the history of the lore. I was wondering how this movie felt because I've, I read up on it as much as I could and I did find some sort of scholarly approaches where people were saying that this film represents a dumbing down of the themes of the play and that the play itself is a subversion of the actual meaning of the Dybbuk in folklore. And I didn't know if any, maybe you do, Mike, as well. Do either of you have an impression of? Does this movie in 1937, would it have felt like a very modern film, uh, simplified version of this lore and these ideas? Or would it have felt like it sort of pays respect to the complications in the play and then the fact that the play itself is, like I said, a, a subversion of, of, a, of something from folklore that itself had a kind of subversive side to it? Well, the first thing everybody always says that the film is not as good as the book, or in this case, the play. I mean, it's the, it's the default position to signal that you've read something and they've not, they haven't. But um, in terms of the the, the film itself, uh, you know, I think that it's very, de- it's not, 
it's it's different from the play in as much as uh, it has this whole section at the beginning in which the whole backstory is 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 filmed and, and filled in, uh, which is not in the play. At the same time, of course, the play is kind of filleted as you would expect into more filmic language. But I think that the way it's actually done, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert, uh, but, but having read the play and watched the film, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I see them as two different kind of genres. And I think that the, uh, the process of adapting one to the other was done sensitively and intelligently. But in terms of the actual play itself, I mean, remember, it's not, it's not like some sort of, it's not like some ancient tale, which is just, it's a, it's a synthesis. I mean, it was written, you know, it's sort of it, it not, it was, yeah, the, when, when did Ansky, when was the play? I think the play uh, was only kind of staged about a hundred years ago. So it was basically, yeah, it was 1905. Yeah. So, so basically that process of actually kind of uh, going into uh, all the shtetls at the time and actually listening and like, you know, like an anthropologist and, and, and what goes on and what people talk about and then actually recording it. I mean, there, there are actually, um, I mean, it's actually certainly published. Uh, there's a, a kind of a, a report of kind of uh, uh, Rappaport Oransky's kind of uh, expeditions at the time. Uh, so you can actually, and there's, there's a really good in terms of actually looking at how the play evolves. There's a, uh, a book by uh, uh, Joachim uh, Neugroschal, who uh, talks about how Tony Kushner asked him to um, retranslate the debut for like a, a play which he was going to kind of uh, readapt. And as part of his research, he started to kind of look at all of those tales from various sources. And he actually published a book um, which actually puts his translation of the play alongside all of those kind of uh, other stories which may or may not have fed into the play. So I think that that's certainly a good place to start. Yeah, there are a lot of interpretations of the play in different forms. I know that I listened to a uh, radio version of it, um, you know, back from, uh, oh, geez, I'm trying to remember what year that it was is played. I want to say 74. And uh, Sidney Lumet had uh, directed a version for television. The one thing that I found fascinating was to find that George Gershwin almost did an adaptation of it, but he couldn't get the right, so they ended up making Porgy and Bess instead, which, talk about different material. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's been very popular over the years. And yeah, even our, our guest this week had been had a hand in a new adaptation of it. So it's it's still being staged and still being reinterpreted. So it's good that this drama from 1905 still has the legs that it had you know it's not just a it's not a dead uh art by any means not at all i mean it's certainly there's a uh, i mean in the jewish theater in warsaw i mean it, it is part of the 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 kind of their the standard program and it's still um uh kind of being staged when i think a lot of that goes to what was said earlier, I think, John, you said it as far as this being such a good tragedy and this whole idea of us being able to see as an audience that moment where tragedy could be avoided, but uh, instead 
you know, Sender still makes that mistake again and ends up choosing the more wealthy bridegroom for his daughter. And it's just one of those classic moments for me where it's just like, oh, you know, and you, you wish you could, you know, change history and change the play as it's going on. But no, it'll always be that way. And we'll always see the same tragedy play itself over and, and over again. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. When Detective Smith was called backstage to investigate the Inwood murder, it looked like a rather routine affair. He hardly expected it to lead to the most dangerous adventure of his life, romance. The case presented a few clues and a few bodies. A very dead body. A very heavenly body. A very suspicious body. And finally, a very charming busybody who started out by getting tangled in the strings of the mystery and finished by getting tied up in the strings of his heart. trouble to protect my reputation covering up the accident destroying that dreadful dress i didn't destroy it so long as i have the dress i'm the one who decides how long this show will run and everything else do you understand you fool there goes evidence that could have helped you well, you're not to say things against charlotte i'm doing all this for her sake you're just jealous of her let them say if they like it's a telecom sounds to me remarkably like blackmail. I think I'd better call the police. Yes, do call the police, Miss Inwood. We'll talk to them together. Who are you? That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Alfred Hitchcock's Stage Fright. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-hosts, Jeff and Daniel. Daniel, what have you been working on lately? You're always into some fascinating areas of cinema. Uh, well, the last couple of months, um, I was working on um, some restorations of Andrzej Zawowski's Polish films, which were presented at uh, Lincoln Center in February, um, particularly uh, on the Silver Globe. Um, so, of course, that was sad obviously because of course Shawowski was ill at the time and, and, and passed away um you know on the I think it was the yeah the same day I actually flew out to New York which was just terrible timing uh, at the same time it was great to um uh have those films restored and to actually have um uh for him to see them uh, and to know that they were restored particularly during the the the, the final weeks in fact, the last time I saw him, it was, uh, you know, it was the, the day before he kind of got really sick. And, and it was to basically to see the kind of final graded version of the Silver Globe. And, uh, you know, and it was so it was that, of course, was sad. But at the same time, it, it was also surrealistic because I never thought I would actually get to see on the Silver Globe in a in a kind of a, a good version on the screen. And um, so, uh, yeah, that was the the, the last project. And uh so uh, tomorrow I'm going to the UK to um, 
there's a like a little Zhuwavsky focus as part of the Polish Film Festival in London, and there's Green Cosmos uh, along with um, Possession, Lampo Tonsadene, and The Devil. So it's the first time The Devil has been screened publicly in England. So um, yeah, that's that's what I'm doing next week. Yeah, I want to cover on the Silver Globe next year. Would you be up for coming back? For sure. All right, awesome. And how about you, John? What have you been up to lately? Well, uh, I've been, for a long time, I've been one of the three people hosting a movie conversation podcast called Movie Schmovie, and that is something that comes out at least every other Friday, sometimes more often than that. It's not quite the curated discussion that this show is, but we talk a lot about current films, and so we get to kind of gripe about a lot of these these modern tropes uh, and uh that's a lot of fun. I also am in a band called Rosemary Stretch. You can find our stuff on Bandcamp at rosemarystretch.bandcamp.com. And I promise I'm going to start using my Twitter feed more effectively. So if anybody wants to catch up on the general uh, you know, uh, roster of projects that I might finally get out the door, you can find me on Twitter at Gianni W. That's G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. So that should be enough, right? Sounds good to me, and I will definitely be sure to link over to that uh, over at our website, projection-booth.com. Come on over. You can find out even more about this week's episode, as well as finding links over to our iTunes page, where you can rate and review the show, or come on over to our Patreon page, where you can donate a few bucks to help the show. Until next week, I will just be counting money.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.